Have you ever felt it? That excitement, that hum that reaches into the very base of your stomach and makes your whole body feel alive? Well, your life can feel like that. Each week, I'll be sharing ways your personal wellness journey can lead you to a life that literally makes you hum. We'll be diving into all things nutrition, mindset, connection, spirituality and relationships to encourage you to be courageous and brave with your life and most importantly, unashamedly you. Together, let's find your hum. Hey there, I'm Kirsty and you are listening to Find Your Hum. This week I'm diving into polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. PCOS. So I will probably be using all of those terms interchangeably. This topic has been highly requested and I suggest you strap yourselves in because this one's actually a bit of a biggie and it is certainly not as straightforward as many people would have you believe. Before I dive in, I just want to say that the information in this episode is not to be used to diagnose or treat. If you feel you need support, please seek the advice of a qualified health practitioner. I'm also recording this whilst in quarantine in Darwin. Yep, I'm back in Australia from the UK doing my two weeks mandatory quarantine. Now, it is quite warm here. Actually, it's always warm in Darwin. So the aircon is on, but hopefully it won't cause too much background noise while I'm recording. I did do a little test and it wasn't too bad. So fingers crossed. Now on to PCOS. The more I talk to ladies, the more common I am finding this syndrome. From those who are in their teens beginning to display symptoms up to those in their 40s who have battled with this their whole reproductive life. It is actually one of the most common reproductive disorders in women with around one in seven experiencing it. I have a few people in my life that suffer with this condition. PCOS is quite complex. It's certainly not just one thing. It is also not a disease. I hope this episode gives you a greater understanding of this condition and also a little on how you can begin to reduce the symptoms associated with PCOS. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is a cluster of symptoms that relate to women experiencing inconsistent ovulation and high levels of androgens, or what are more commonly known as male hormones. The symptoms that women experience include irregular or no periods, facial hair, an increase in body hair, the type that is long, dark, generally occurs on like your chin, cheeks, belly and around your nipples. Think about where men have their body hair, that's generally where you'll find it. You can get weight gain, but that's not always like consistent. I've definitely seen women with PCOS that don't have weight gain, acne or that dreaded bacne, hair loss, and dysregulated blood sugar. Due to the inconsistent ovulation, it's also possible that women can experience infertility. Long term, the consequences of uncontrolled blood sugar can be associated with type 2 diabetes and heart disease. PCOS really is more than just a period problem. So how is PCOS diagnosed? This is often the first question I ask when I have a client who tells me they have PCOS. Now call me cynical, but the most common criteria is just a little lacking in my opinion. There also isn't just one set of criteria for diagnosis. 
As PCOS is a syndrome, diagnosing this condition is not easy, as many of the symptoms are not unique to PCOS, generally the fact with most um, hormonal issues I find. This is why disorders such as Cushing syndrome, thyroid disorders, or elevated prolactin need to be ruled out first. Generally, if you went to the doctors, a diagnosis of PCOS is made via what is known as the Rotterdam criteria. This is a broad and loose set of criteria in which women need to meet two of the following. So one, irregular ovulation. Two, clinical evidence of increased androgens, particularly testosterone or DHEA, and that's usually done by a blood test. Cysts on the ovaries found via an ultrasound and also ruling out all those other conditions. I'm really not a fan of this criteria. In fact, many in the natural health space are not. The reason being that is if you use this criteria, you could be diagnosed with PCOS by having irregular periods and polycystic ovaries, but not have androgens in excess, which is crazy. The lack of ovulation leads to the overproduction of androgens. How can you have PCOS and not have an overproduction of androgens? Does not make sense. The other criteria is also known as the Androgen Excess Society criteria. For this criteria, a woman has PCOS if she has all of the following. 1. Ovarian dysfunction and or polycystic ovaries. 2. Clinical evidence of increased androgens like the blood test. And 3. Exclusion of any other conditions that would cause those androgens to be high. This totally makes more sense. It highlights the androgen excess and that failure to ovulate. Before I go on, let me explain a little more about these polycystic ovaries and androgens. Our ovaries are filled with follicles. These follicles are essentially little cysts, not quite the exact term for it, but we could call them little cysts. This is totally normal. If you listen to my Female Cycle 101 podcast, you will know that during our cycle, we develop a dominant follicle. So if you have a normal cycle that leads to ovulation, there will be around, say, 6 to 12 of these little follicles or cysts. What I want to mention here is that teens can have up to 25 of these on each ovary and still be normal. Now, one of these 6 to 12 little follicles becomes the dominant follicle. This suppresses those other follicles or cysts and they are reabsorbed back into our ovaries. Now in PCOS, one of the hallmarks of the conditions is that failure to ovulate. This means that there was no dominant follicle. There was no suppression of those other developing follicles. So what you are left with are many small undeveloped follicles or cysts in and around your ovaries. This is why I don't like an ultrasound for diagnosis of PCOS. The image of those polycystic ovaries are just letting you know that you didn't ovulate that month. The next month could be completely different. Ovaries are really quite dynamic in the way that they are always changing. Having a polycystic ovary could actually be a normal feature for you. In addition to that, there are about 20 to 25%, yep, 1 in 5 to 1 in 4 women who will have polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound and have regular cycles, regular ovulation, and completely normal hormonal profiles. 
Seeing polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound is only an indication that some sort of endocrine abnormality might exist. Out of that 20% that have polycystic ovaries on their ultrasound, around 8-10% to 10 of them have PCOS, which is why an ultrasound should not be used as a diagnostic tool for PCOS. To further highlight the need to have a more thorough criteria, 70-80% of women who do not ovulate regularly have PCOS. This is what we are looking for. This is the underlying driver of the other symptoms. And there can be the absence of those polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound and you can still have PCOS. As for those androgens, what are they? Basically, they are the dominant male hormones. But we do have them as females and they do have very important roles to play. But we don't want them in excess. Androgens are testosterone, androstendione and DHEAS. Now the best way to test these is via a blood test. If I was ordering a blood test for someone with PCOS, I would like to see what their hormones were doing. So those main four hormones that I spoke about in the Female Cycle 101 podcast, estrogen, progesterone, LH and FSH, paying most attention to that LH and FSH as these are our main hormones for ovulation. I would want to see the levels of testosterone, particularly free testosterone and also DHEAS and something called sex hormone binding globulin. SHBG. The primary symptom is the failure to ovulate or irregular ovulation. This failure to ovulate causes deficiency in estradiol, a form of estrogen, and progesterone, and high levels of testosterone. It flows on to many of the other PCOS symptoms, such as acne, infertility, and those male patterns of hair over the body. So while not ovulating can increase androgens, so can hormonal birth control, hyperlactin, hypothyroidism. That's when your thyroid is not working as effectively as it should be. Even some psychiatric medications. And then there are also some rare diseases of the adrenals or the pituitary gland that can also cause some of these symptoms. And if you remember that pituitary gland is a gland that's located at the base of our spine that directs all of our other endocrine glands. With some of these symptoms, there can be lifelong health issues, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and the overproduction of insulin, all of which have strong links to diabetes type 2. Cardiovascular risks are also increased with the presence of high levels of fat in the blood and increased insulin. As you can see, there can be some lifelong complications from PCOS. And I don't say this to scare anyone. I say this so if you have or you think you may have PCOS, or you know someone with PCOS, you don't leave it too long to go and get a diagnosis and to also treat it because it is treatable with a proper diet and lifestyle modifications, correct supplementation. Many of the symptoms of PCOS can be decreased and even eliminated. The effectiveness in treating PCOS really comes down to identifying what the underlying driver is of that androgen excess. So why does this happen to some of us? There are lots of theories as to the development of PCOS. And because not all PCOS looks the same, it's hard to determine an exact cause. We know there are four main drivers. Insulin, inflammation, 
androgens and coming off the pill. But there are many of us out there who could experience these drivers and not develop PCOS. That is because there are some factors that can increase your chances of developing the syndrome. It is often believed that there could be genetic abnormalities that put you in a more higher risk for PCOS. For instance, genes that affect the ovaries, causing them to produce more androgens or decreasing the amount of sex hormone binding globulin you produce. You could also have genes that affect the way your pituitary gland controls the other hormones in your body. Even genes that make you more susceptible to developing insulin resistance. Like all of our gene abnormalities, we need conditions that turn on the expression of these genes. And that is often done through the exposure of endocrine disrupting chemicals. These chemicals include plastics like BPA, pesticides and phthalates. Not only can these create conditions that can cause your genes to turn on, they can also alter the way your hypothalamus talks to your ovaries. Now, if you need to know what your hypothalamus is, head back to that Female Cycle 101 podcast. They can also alter how sensitive you are to insulin and the amount of free testosterone that you have circulating. This is where diet and lifestyle can have such a huge impact on your symptoms. It is possible that you can get yourself into a position where you no longer meet the criteria for PCOS. Effectively, you don't have it anymore. Although that underlying susceptibility will still be there, you won't have PCOS. Before I dive further into those four underlying drivers, I would like to touch on the conventional medical treatment for PCOS. First up, we have the pill, which honestly doesn't that seem to be the go-to for any women's hormonal problem. Now, the logic behind this is that it can suppress androgens, particularly the pills called Diane and Yasmin here in Australia. As we know, this is helpful in PCOS. The other thing it does, though, is suppresses ovulation. So I'm not really sure why we'd want to give this to one with PCOS. The idea is we want to start ovulating again. And the pill has also been known to increase insulin resistance, which is a huge driver of PCOS. Next up, we have metformin. This is a drug that is used to treat type 2 diabetes. And with the chances of developing type 2 diabetes, this isn't a bad option. The idea here is to treat insulin resistance. There has been mixed results with the use of metformin and reducing insulin resistance. In fact, many natural treatments work just as well without the digestive upsets and depletion of vitamin B12 that can come with taking metformin. Okay, let's look at those underlying drivers of PCOS. As I said earlier, there are four main underlying drivers of PCOS. They are insulin resistance, inflammation, the adrenals overproducing androgens, and coming off the pill. So let's start with the most common, insulin resistance. We need insulin in healthy amounts. This is what tells our cells to take in the glucose, that is sugar, and convert it into energy. However, the receptors on your cells particularly those in your liver and muscles, can lose their sensitivity to this insulin, resulting in too much insulin in your blood. Down the track, this can cause your blood sugar to increase. In fact, you are insulin resistant before you actually become diabetic. But it's often the case that your blood sugar is normal, 
and your insulin is high as a pancreas has to continue to pump out more and more insulin to get the cells to respond. Now this insulin in the blood causes inflammation and weight gain. It can impair ovulation and stimulate the ovaries to make testosterone instead of estrogen. It also results in an increase in luteinizing hormone, which stimulates more androgens and lowers that sex hormone binding globulin. Now, this sex hormone binding globulin actually binds testosterone, making it inactive. So less sex hormone binding globulin equals more free testosterone, which we do not want in PCOS. So as you can see, insulin resistance really does cause the perfect storm for PCOS. So how do you know if this could be your driver? There are blood tests that can tell you. Fasting insulin is a great for severe insulin resistance, but if you have a milder version, then the insulin glucose challenge is much more effective as it is more sensitive. Then there is the HOMA, H-O-M-A, insulin resistance index. What doesn't tell you if you have insulin resistance are tests for blood sugar. Whilst insulin resistance is most commonly found in those who are overweight, you can be normal or even underweight and still have insulin resistance. The best thing here is to get tested. The main culprit to insulin resistance is fructose. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if you really want to get your insulin under control, you kind of got to quit sugar. Actually, not kind of. You've got to quit sugar and all sugar. This won't be forever but you will always need to be mindful of it. I understand how hard this can be. Quitting sugar can be a minefield. This is where getting support and guidance is key. It also doesn't mean quitting carbs. Food like rice, which contains starch, can actually help reduce your sugar cravings. You will need to be mindful of your carb intake though. I actually find a lot of my clients with insulin resistance get great results out of saying, pretty low carb all day and then having something like a really nice serve of rice or potatoes with their dinner. I would also recommend not taking hormonal birth control. As I said earlier, this can increase insulin resistance. However, this again needs to be done with consideration, especially if a baby is not in your plans. There are other ways of protecting yourself against falling pregnant, so those options need to be discussed to see which works for you and your circumstance. Please just don't stop your hormonal birth control if you are trying not to have a baby. One thing I do recommend for insulin resistance is exercise. This gets those muscle cells sensitive to insulin again. One study showed that with just 12 weeks of strength training, an improvement of 24% in insulin resistance was achieved. Supplements such as magnesium, myo-inositol, chromium, vitamin D, berberine, zinc, and lipoic acid can also help with reducing your insulin resistance. Next up, we have inflammation. Now, inflammation plays a huge role in any period problem but here we see it driving PCOS. When we're in a state of inflammation, our immune system is in a state of continual activation. It really never gets a rest, it is always on. Now this can come from stress, from environmental toxins, intestinal permeability, or gut dysbiosis. 
can even be inflammatory foods such as gluten and the A1 protein found in milk. How can you tell if you have underlying inflammation? There are a few blood tests that you can have, things like your vitamin D level, your CRP, which is your C-reactive protein, antibodies to gluten, abnormal blood counts, all of this can point to inflammation. There are also a few signs from your body to look out for. Constant headaches, joint pain, continual infections, skin conditions like eczema and psoriasis are also really good indicators. Stool tests and urine tests can point towards gut dysbiosis or intestinal permeability if you think that might be a driver for you. If you have inflammatory PCOS, you will also have insulin resistance, most likely, as insulin resistance is quite inflammatory in the body the longer it goes unchecked. It's really important here to find the source of the inflammation if it is not that insulin resistance. It's highly advisable to remove those inflammatory foods like wheat, gluten, dairy and sugar. Reduce exposure to environmental toxins. A great way to start doing this is by gradually changing over your skincare and cleaning to non-chemical based products. Stress plays a huge, huge, huge role. We all know that stress exists in today's world, especially in the form of pressure and urgency. So it's not always about removing the stressor, because sometimes that's impossible, but more about finding ways to cope with it so that its effects on your body aren't as great. If there is any sign of intestinal permeability or gut dysbiosis, this needs to be addressed. In fact, this is the biggest driver to inflammation that I see in my clients, not just those with PCOS, but every client I see. There are supplements you can take, such as zinc, berberine, glutamine, and probiotics, which can help with your gut, but I highly suggest doing this with a practitioner who can find out exactly what is going on for you. The biggest thing here is to be patient. Healing inflammatory PCOS is gradual. Please be kind and patient with yourself. Next up, we have post-peel PCOS. The best thing about post-peel PCOS is that it's usually pretty temporary. And hopefully, with a little care and love for your cycle and your hormones, ovulation will resume. Now, generally, ovulation resumes within around three months of stopping the pill or any hormonal treatment. For others, this can take a month or even years. Personally, when I came off the pill, it took me over nine months to get my first period, then another six to nine months on top of that before I had any regular pattern to my cycle. So why does coming off the pill trigger PCOS? As I said earlier, the pill can actually cause insulin resistance. It suppresses ovulation. And finally, if you want either Yasmin or Diane, they're the ones with the lower androgen, it can actually cause your body to rebound, resulting in a surge of those androgens. Some ways in which you know if you have post-pill PCOS that's actually really hard to say, post-peel PCOS, um, is you've recently stopped the pill, your period was normal before you started the pill, and of course you meet the criteria for having PCOS. It's advisable to have your LH and FSH ratio tested here. You will most likely see a high LH compared to FSH. This is in fact common in all PCOS cases, but with post-peel it is usually the only finding I would also test prolactin here because that can also be high to normal to high. 
Now, similar to me, you can come off the pill and have amenorrhea, which is the absence of your cycle, without having high LH or high androgens. For some, it can just take time for your period to re-establish. And this is why careful consideration should be taken when you begin the pill and also some help sought as you come off. Much like inflammatory PCOS, you need to be patient with yourself and your body. The pill has been telling you not to ovulate for some time. In fact, for many people, for years. So it can take a little while for your body to get this process back. You need to let your body know it's safe to begin to ovulate again. Lots of nutritious food, an abundance of veggies, lean proteins, healthy fats, and importantly, those starches. Supplements like zinc and Vitex can be beneficial here, but please see a health practitioner before supplementing with Vitex, as it could make your peak cost worse depending on what its underlying driver is. And lastly, we have the least common, which is adrenal PCOS. The reason this is called adrenal PCOS is that the only real elevated androgen is DHEAS, which is produced by the adrenals. Your testosterone, produced by the ovaries, is normal. There is no insulin resistance, no inflammation, and you have not just come off the pill. It's also important here to test for prolactin, as this could be the underlying cause of your PCOS or another condition called non-classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia. This type of PCOS is driven by your HPA, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. In short, your stress response. The only really way to treat this is through modulating that stress response. There are supplements that can support your HPA axis, such as magnesium, B vitamins, zinc, and mushrooms but it really does come down to how you and your body are dealing with stress with the pressure and urgency on a daily or even hourly basis again you need to be really kind and patient with your body with this kind of PCOS now before I wrap up I just want to touch on a few things that can impair ovulation and promote those excess androgens hypothyroidism it interferes with your ovulation and can worsen insulin resistance. Vitamin D deficiency. Your ovaries need vitamin D and vitamin D needs healthy fats so it can work in your body. So get some sunshine and get some healthy fats. Vitamin D could also be low even if you're out in the sun if you have a problem with metabolizing it, which again comes back to the gut. So that might need to be worked on as well. Too much soy and other phytoestrogens can actually suppress ovulation. You want to be particularly mindful of this if you've had a test and you have a high sex hormone binding globulin on that test. This is one that someone following a vegetarian or vegan diet needs to be particularly mindful of as those diets can actually be high in phytoestrogens and may be lacking some of the other nutrients needed for ovulation. Your ovaries also need zinc and iodine, so watch for deficiencies in these nutrients. And I did touch on it earlier a few times, but too little food and too little carbs can cause you not to ovulate. In fact, undereating can put you into a state of hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is where you haven't had a period for more than six months and no medical reason can be found for it. 
you want to know more about hypothalamic amenorrhea, I did a podcast with the queen of HA, Claudia Vidal, which you will find if you scroll back through the episodes of this podcast. Our main goal with treating PCOS is to find out why you are not ovulating and get your body into a position where it is able to do this again. Now, I hope this has helped you understand what is happening if you or someone close to you has PCOS. Whilst the syndrome is complicated, the ways to address and correct symptoms are absolutely achievable. And remember, this does not have to be a life sentence. You can get yourself into a position where you no longer meet the criteria for PCOS. Cheers for tuning in to another episode of Find Your Hum. Don't forget to subscribe. Oh, and tell your mates about it.